0: Bill, thank you for such a warm introduction. And if you have ever wondered, is Bill Gorman really that brilliant and smart everywhere he goes? Yeah, <laughs> it's really true. Um, it's a privilege to serve on the team with Bill. And uh, with this Brookside pastoral staff team, I also work with all the campuses in the city. And so I'm usually at Brookside a couple times a month, usually the, four, the second and the fourth Sundays. And um, if we have a fifth Sunday, I love that jazz Sunday too. So. Um, Last week, if you were with us, uh, we were in Romans. And you know that Bill introduced us to this incredible gift that we've been given. This righteousness in Christ. A right standing before God that comes apart from the law. Apart from anything that we could do. This gift of new life. And it is such a privilege to be here today. Because if last week we we were introduced, given this gift. Today what we get to do, my friends is to play, <laughs> is to enjoy and to delight in this gift of our salvation. And I, want, I just want you to imagine with me Christmas morning, okay? And not the, not the like early part where you're like stumbling to the coffee pot for some caffeine, sleep-deprived from, from wrapping presents. Not, not the part where uh, you know, your children are radiating energy toward the gifts under the tree, and you're clinging to the deeper meaning of the day. <laughs> um, I don't even want you to imagine the gift exchange itself. As, as fun and beautiful as that is, but I want you to think about that, those moments right after the gift exchange happens. Um, now, some of you, I know you, and I know what you're thinking. I need to help you along here a little bit. Uh, you're having trouble getting to this moment because you're thinking about the 700-piece Playmobil set that <laughs> needs, like, put together. Um, that's not the part I, I want you to focus on. In fact, let this be a courtesy reminder Uh, Christmas gifts should never be assembled on Christmas Day. Is that really clear, right? I actually, I read an article recently that um, one of the most difficult gifts is getting Barbie in her happy family home with 75, like, teeny tiny decal stickers. You can't just imagine the nightmare of putting that thing together. So that's not the moment. I want you to think about the moment in which these individuals whom you love— maybe even especially the kids around you, are just enthralled in the delight of these things they've been given. You know, this is, this is Ethan, like, sprawled out on the living room floor with the Lego set in front of him. This is Sammy, these are my nephews, killing it on the, the monster truck we. you know. And kids are the best, right? Because their whole mind, their whole body, their whole being is just engaged in the, in the beauty of these gifts. And this, I think, really is the moment Uh, that we are coming to today. It always cracks me up how kids, when you give them a gift, uh, it, it makes them line up every other toy. You know, you give them a Hot Wheels car, and the closet in a minute is empty with every car they've ever been given, and it's lined up on the carpet for like the grand parade, you know. And I think in a way, that is where our text of scripture here in 2 Corinthians 5 takes us today. It's kind of like this chance to just line up the the many facets and gifts of this new life, this righteousness in Christ that we've been given and to just notice it, to enjoy this, to notice it, and to delight in the gifts that we've been given. I think there are really three things that the text points to today. And these are the things I want to cover, that we rejoice in our salvation in the fullness of delight because we've been desperate for new life the first thing. This text shows that we have been desperate for new life. Second thing is that this new life changes everything. When we get the gift of this new life, everything is different. And the third thing is that this gift of new life makes us partners with a God who is changing everything. So that's where we're going today. If you would just bow with me in a word of prayer as we come before this God. Heavenly Father, we stand before you based on the righteousness of Jesus. And um, we come in this moment asking that you would help us to enter in, to to notice these gifts. Lord, we know that this gift of new life in Jesus is so miraculous that it's not something that that we conjure up on our own. This is a gift that you give and that you secure, as John said, the guarantee of your Holy Spirit comes and, and quickens this gift. It livens us to this gift. And Lord, we ask that you would do that for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Uh, well, have you ever really received a gift that you did not even just want, but you actually needed the gift? Uh, I'm talking here about kind of big, big kid gifts. You know, these are the gifts that uh, cannot be, probably can't be bought. <laughs> Uh, and a lot of times, these are the kinds of gifts that you don't even know how profound they are as you're receiving them. You know, sometimes it's a conversation that you remember years later, and you realize, wow, what a gift that was. Um, sometimes it's, it's just a special moment that you shared. Maybe it's a person or uh, some kind of circumstance that gave to you or gave back to you a part of yourself, part of who you are. These are the gifts that are the deepest graces in our life. You know, they bring healing They bring provision. They bring redemption. As I was thinking about uh, times in my life when when those kinds of gifts had been on tap, been on view for me, I was reminded of an episode that happened about a year ago. Um, Some of you might remember these little wristbands. You you can see it here. These little wristbands that we passed out here at the church. We passed these out about a year ago. If you weren't with us, it was just to launch off our, our next ministry year And to kind of be a tangible reminder of the values we hold to, the priorities in in our congregation. And the fact is, I wasn't a fan of the wristband. I I hadn't been part of the decision. I showed up one Sunday morning, got a wristband alongside of all of you, and I I didn't love it. Now, uh, before we go any further with my story, I want to just say two things quickly. One, I want, I want you to know that I received permission to tell this story. <laughs> uh, lest, you know, some of you are squirming as I continue. It might become important just that you know that. Uh, the second thing is I want to make it really clear from the get-go that the story I'm going to share is not about wristbands. It's not about if you like a wristband, if I like a wristband. <laughs> this story is, is deeper than that. What, what it's about is about me finding myself in a place when I needed a gift. I needed something that I couldn't get for myself. So the story actually begins about a week after these wristbands go out in church. I'm sitting uh, in a meeting with the pastoral staff team at Brookside, uh, with Bill, with Claire, with John. And you got to remember, this is a little over a year ago. We're all brand new. This is probably my first, I don't know, maybe my first or second meeting with this group. And we're all gathered, but the meeting hasn't started yet. It's kind of one of these informal spaces where, um, you know, everyone can hear, but it's not business. And I say to Bill, Bill, tell me you weren't behind this wristband thing. And, uh, and Bill, probably, I'm sure, hearing the tone of my voice, understanding the origins of the wristband, responded with pretty much the one appropriate thing he could say in that moment. Um, he said, no, JT, actually, John was part of that idea in a worship planning meeting. And um, there was something about the way he kind of smiled when he said it. I mean, Maybe he realized I've already put my foot, like, totally in my mouth. Uh, something about how he said it. I, I thought he was pulling my leg. And I said to him, shut up. Uh, <laughs> of course, in the hearing of everyone. And I, I slowly began to realize, because time did slow for me in this moment. Oh, he's not, he's not kidding. This, is, this was John's idea. And, and you, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like this. You know, waves of awkwardness are kind of settling on this group. And uh, really what proceeded next was some of the most unbecoming combinations of, of who I could have been. Um, you know, my own self-justification, why I was right in this opinion about the wristband thing, and at the same time, these sort of feigned attempts of appreciating John's contribution to the team, you know. And, you know, scrambling, and really, you know, all the while I was making these statements, these questions that were, that were sharp, they were defensive, they were self-protective, it was all about me. If you were here last Sunday, I mean, it's all what, what Bill talked about. It's like we wake up and live our lives, me, me, I, I, my, my, you know. And uh, the the fact is, I was a total and complete jerk in the moment. And um, I mean, I, I, I ruined any. You know, we didn't even have a friendship to injure. I just like destroyed any rapport that had been there. And um, the bottom line is that it is a testimony, y'all. A testimony to the mercy of your pastoral team that we ever moved on from that moment. Um, and the meeting happened, and we did move on. Um, of course, I didn't move on. <laughs> I carried this horrid, yucky feeling in the pit of my stomach the, the whole rest of the meeting. It only grew as the day wore, wore on. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that what, what bothered me most initially was not even the ways that I might have hurt or offended John. What initially came up for me was my own shame and embarrassment, um, my own disappointment in myself. Uh, Again, this is all about me. And it's also embarrassing to tell you that on that day, uh, the sicker that I got, like the more torn up about it, the more my inclination was to spin this, was to try to scramble and kind of make this right. You know, I... I botched this up. Uh, how can, how can I, I fix it? Or, you know, to say it Christianly, how can I make amends? Um, but as the day wore on, God's Spirit began to just illuminate. He began to make it very clear to me that the fundamental problem here was not just what I had said and done, <laughs> as wretched as those might have been, it wasn't, it wasn't even that I could point to patterns of the same sin in my own life as I could. Um, it was not even that I had uh, offended my brother, though all of that was very much true. What was so clear for me on that day is that the fundamental problem was me. <laughs> it was who I am, who I was, um, the, ugly, the ugliness of myself and my soul apart from Jesus Have you ever had this day? (laughs) And somehow, somehow, in the merciful light of the Lord, you, you name your sin and you just realize, I'm stuck. You know, I think so many times as people, whether or not we have identified with Jesus, you know, we wake up into our day, we go about our lives so independently. You know, we're just not even attempting to live this new life in Christ. Um, we wake up into the day ready, ready to do it on our own. And you know, sure, I'm going to slip up and I'm going to ask you for the, to forgive me. Um, I don't know about you, though, but generally on any given day, I'm not looking to be a totally new person. Um, I'm just looking for a break, you know. <laughs> and not in a major way, just give me a little grace. Give me a hall pass. Give me a wink and a smile when I get it a little wrong. And even as Christians, we lie to ourselves so often about the fundamental diagnosis of our being. And we refuse to name the reality that without Christ, we are hopelessly broken and desperately trapped inside of the small world of ourselves and our sin. What I needed on that day And indeed, what my brother gave to me was not some little pat on the back of my old self, not just a little grace. What I needed was to be crucified with Jesus. My old life, in all of its patterns and ways, put to death. And I needed new life from a Savior, from Jesus who would take control over me, not not just what I do and say, but who would control every fiber of my being and this is what paul describes in our text today look at second corinthians uh, chapter 5 beginning in verse 14 paul says for the love of christ controls us because we've concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves For him who for their sake died and was raised. We don't need a hall pass. We don't need a do-over. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to die with Christ to that deathly way of living. And we need to be raised to new life in Jesus Without this identification in the death and life of Jesus, we can pretend, we can run, we can hide, we can lie, we can try, but we cannot truly live. We delight in our salvation when we remember how desperate is our need for new life in Jesus. Second thing this passage teaches is that new life in Christ changes everything. Don't worry, I'm not going to try to explain everything. (laughs) might take a while. But it's important that we begin with that kind of comprehensive language because that is really the language of this text. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In this one verse... Paul makes four very quick, strong statements. And it's especially evident when you're reading the original text. You're going along, you're moving along, and sentences are flowing. All of a sudden you get to verse 17, and the text literally reads, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Most English translations will fill that out a little bit with the subject, he is a new creation. But the sense of the text here is more pervasive than that. Uh, Throughout the scriptures, Paul uses this noun of creation Uh, to refer to a lot—he uses it several times, but he never refers to an individual. That's not what's on view. Instead, Paul is pointing to this concept of a new creation, a new cosmos, a new heavens and earth. This idea that God is making everything new. God is restoring his original design and creation, reclaiming his image, his imprint upon all that he's made. New creation. New paradigm. New story being told. And yet we can't get away from our part in this if anyone is in Christ. That's personal. That's you. That's me with our old lives being made new. There's a lady in my neighborhood. She's become a friend, Allison. She calls herself the dumpster diva. She's been on Nate Burkus. If you don't know who that is, don't, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Um, Allison literally scours trash cans to find old furniture and scraps that she can remake. Uh, I did press her on the dumpster part, and she acknowledged that she more often goes curbside, though she had a story or two about the trash can. Um, But, you know, this, I think, is such a picture of our story. We have been in the dumpster, um, empty on the trash heap. Our previous owner sin, after he's taken everything from us, he leaves us discarded and alone. That's who I was. But Jesus makes us new. And he doesn't just dive into the dumpster and pull us out and, and fill a shop with a bunch of old, crusty, nasty furniture. He doesn't pretend that we're new or call us new or love us so much that it's as if we're new. This is, this is the miracle of salvation, is that he makes us brand new. What sin has discarded, Jesus claims. And Paul himself seems pretty blown away by this. Behold, he says, the new has come. Behold, this is the language used by the prophets when they've got some big announcement to make. In Christ, God is making a new creation. He's writing a whole new story, and he's starting with us. We rejoice in our salvation because we've been desperate for new life. Because new life changes everything. And last thing, because new life makes us partners with a God who's changing everything. Um, friends, this is the part for me that is mind-blowing. This is where our Christmas video goes viral. <laughs> I feel like you can actually even see this in Paul's language. If you look at verse 13, he, he's kind of hinted at this. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Look, friends, we are living for God and for you. That's it. This is it. For God, for you. This all probably seems just a little bit crazy, this new life, this new reality. Um, But it's not crazy in some weird evangelical subculture way, right? (laughs) We all know that, crazy. It's not the crazy. The crazy here is crazy because we're different, um, because God has made us new, and because— Because of that, we see the world in different ways. And that's going to be a little strange. And here's the really crazy part, is that God not only invites us into that new reality, but he invites us to call others into that new reality. Look at 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. This is the good news that we've been given to share. Good news. And as we've heard before, it's not good advice. It's not good techniques or tips or even a good enough kind of pat on the back. It's news. It's, it's something we don't expect. It's something no one expects. But it matters. It affects us. It changes things. That's the sense. Notice how explicit Paul is in verses 19 through 20 about this ministry of reconciliation. And God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Y'all, that's evangelism. (laughs) <laughs> but, get this, it is not removed from this larger story. It is given into this community of lives made new. God's design for evangelism was never for it to happen apart from this larger proof of a community that's, that's been transformed, that's being transformed. That's the point, really, of this passage. You know, I mean, the Corinthian congregation was a mess. I mean, they had been a community plagued by gossip, by broken relationships, all kinds of wristband moments, my friends, full of prideful people who regularly wounded others. Even, I mean, I don't know if you realize, this, this letter that Paul is writing is actually an attempt to repair re- relations. They had attacked Paul after he'd given his lives for them. It's into this community that Paul writes to them and casts a vision and says, friends, We all are Christ's ambassadors. He might have said, sinful, broken church. God has come to reconcile you to himself, to one another, and then to use your lives, your lives crucified with Jesus and raised again to spread the news. It's the beautiful news of the gospel. And it really only ever makes sense when it's shared in this broader context because evangelism is not the end goal. I mean, do we get that? Sometimes I think, you know, it's like, especially in the culture at large, this idea that evangelism is like the one thing that's like the end, the end goal. Um, but the fact is that evangelism is a means to an end. It's, it's all about this process of enveloping others into the new community and, and their participation in the story of what God is doing. Andy Crouch is so good on this point, this idea of how proclamation and demonstration, living it out, really have to go together. Listen to his words. He says, The result of both real evangelism and real doing of justice— that's demonstration, my friends— is the restoration of the image of the only true God in the world. That's the result. The restoration of the image of the only true God in the world. The image cannot be restored without naming the name and telling the story of the one true creator God. That's evangelism. So all serious effort for justice must be connected to evangelism. And that image cannot be restored without God's own image bearers. Here's our part, demonstration. Taking up their true calling, their true identity and calling, and having the capacity to fulfill that calling. So all evangelism must be connected to justice or to these efforts to create conditions where every image bearer can experience full dignity and agency. This is our calling as ambassadors for Jesus. It's a message we proclaim It's a message we embody. But the world is not going to receive this message. Either the words or the sense of it. If our new community looks just like their neighborhood association, their PTA, their girls' night out, um, there must be something different, right? There must be something different that marks our community. This is one of the reasons why I'm so encouraged by the partnerships that our congregation has with many different communities in our city. You know, it's this place where relationships can cross lines between cultures, between races, between socioeconomic distance. The world needs to see, hey, we need to understand, right, that the gospel is powerful enough for this. And, you know, the only way this is going to happen, the very tail end of this passage points to this picture of Jesus in our place. The only way that we'll be able to live in this new kind of community is if we are living these cruciform lives, taking on that very pattern that Jesus took on. So one question for us to consider as we think about all this is just real simple. Do I have one friendship, a friendship in my life, that would display the power of the gospel by demonstrating love in spite of differences? Do I have a friendship that's not just about affinities, Do I have any place in my life that would demonstrate this, this radical new life, this radical new way of the gospel? Or maybe to flip it on its head, who do I most despise? Who do I just hate? We're not going to say that, right? Who drives me crazy? (laughs) Who drives me crazy? Um, You know, for some of you, this is your marriage, right? I'm not even kidding. (laughs) In, in a way, I think we, we use the language of reconciliation and sometimes we make it this grand distant thing, this cosmic thing. And yes, it is. But if, if reconciliation isn't right here in my house, in my meetings, you know, then, then we've forsaken the power of the gospel. For some of you, you are here today and there is enmity, there is hatred, or there has been for this one true creator God. And this is how the Spirit is wooing you. For others of you, God is calling you to step forward into new places that feel strange to you, feel different, into new relationships or communities, styles of, you know, very different styles, different ways of thinking and worshiping and working. And this is maybe the demonstration. This is maybe the call. Whatever it is God is saying to us today, friends, as as Christ's ambassadors, be reconciled. Just a few more thoughts about how this might work itself out in our lives. First, a word about evangelism. I used to get so stressed out about evangelism, you know, just feeling like I will never be prepared. You know, I can study for 20 years and I won't know all that Buddha said, you know. And it's like I, I, I used to almost frame it as this argument that I had to win, you know. Um, or I would just think I will never have the courage you know, by the way, evangelism will shut up the chattiest among us. I mean, you know that. It's true, right? Um, over, over time, I've really come to understand my role very simply. Um, as I think about evangelism, the, the, the call is to simply bear witness to Jesus and to invite Jesus to bear witness to himself. Um, you know, sometimes when, when I'm chatting with friends who don't, Profess, you don't know or or proclaim Jesus as the one true God, um, I will just respond um, kind of, I think, very practically and just say, Oh, I'm really, that's interesting. I wonder what Jesus would say or think about that. And you guys, that is not a method, right? I mean, in any given moment, I'm usually truly having to think. I mean, Jesus was such a fascinating man, this expression of God. I'm usually having to really think. Well, what would Jesus have said? How would Jesus have been? And it becomes this, this chance to almost be a little bit collaborative. And, you know, in a way, it, it changes from this thing of I'm, you know, raising a case and, we're, and you're against me and we're sort of arguing. Enter Jesus. There's this third dynamic. There's this collaboration. And maybe you hate what Jesus said. Maybe I love what Jesus said. But here we are together in this dialogue and Jesus is, he, you know, he doesn't need help. <laughs> he can bear witness to himself, and he does so. And not only does he bear witness to himself through the text of Scripture and through the many, many ways that we've come to know who God is in the divine revelation of the Scriptures, but Jesus is a, is a resurrected living God who bears witness through the, through the work of the Spirit in any moment. So that's been very helpful for me. Also, I stumbled onto a list of just really practical ideas about a year ago. Um, it's a, a list from Tim Keller. I really liked it. And I decided just to experiment. What I did was I started just placing random calendar appointments. They're like all-day appointments. Like, I think they called it like Share Gospel Hope or something like that. And um, I just listed it as an all-day event. And then in the note field on that appointment, I just put this list in there. And I don't know, I want to share it with you. I found it helpful just on that day to read through and just remind myself of some really practical ways that I could be about this work of proclamation. Um, So I want to share it with you. The first one is let people around you know that you're a Christian. You know, and just do that in a natural way. You know, I mean, I think that Saturday Night Live or who knows, like there could be Portlandia, there could be some pretty amazing spoofs on the ways that Christians... Uh, let others know that they follow Jesus. But this, the idea here is, hey, make yourself just real in who you are. Uh, two, ask friends about their faith. And here's the kicker. When you do that, just listen. What do, you, what do they say? What do they believe? What do they question? Um, third thing, listen to your friends' problems. Uh, maybe offer to pray for them. You know, these, these last couple ones, they assume we have a friendship. Maybe, maybe you even need to step take a step back from that and begin cultivating spaces where where friendships can happen. Another idea, share your problems with others. You know, be vulnerable about, you know, this process that you're in, that yes, there's this new life, but God is also making that. He's fleshing that out in you. Um, Another thing, another idea, giving them a book to read or maybe offering to read one with them. Sharing your own story. Especially powerful is the chance to share your testimony. How did You come to believe in this God and this story that God's writing. Answer objections and questions as they come up. Invite them to a church event. I mean, I was thinking on Friday night when we were gathered here for the Mosaic Jazz Concert. What a beautiful expression of the church. What a beautiful—I mean, can we get our neighborhood to just—can we just bless them with that? Um, Offer to read the Bible with them. Um, Or take them to a course that is actually exploring Christianity. So just a few practical ideas. Um, and as we know, all of these ideas, all this stuff is totally empty without the broader context of new life spilling out, spilling out of us. And then also our own involvement with a new community. I mean, to live this out, really, there is, there's no way to do this apart from a broader congregation. And so I think one of the most fundamental ways that we embody this message is by gathering together together on Sunday morning, every week, for two hours of worship. And we set apart—think about that—we set apart a couple of hours from our lives when we honor Christ as the giver of our new life and the maker, the way maker, in this new community. We give to God time, and we give to God attention— And I don't know, if you stop to think about it, I was reflecting, I think that may be one of the most radical testimonies that we could offer to our time-pressed, multitasking world. It's a powerful testimony. And as we come together, one of the things that we do, and especially we like to do it here on a weekly basis, is to gather around the Lord's table. And by the way, when we do this, we participate with millions of other new communities across the globe and across our city. It's a beautiful testimony in and of itself. What Scripture tells us, though, is that every time we gather together around the Lord's table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Did you catch that? When we gather together to embody, to demonstrate this sacrament, we proclaim a message. And it's the story that Jesus died and implicit, was raised to to new life, and is coming again. So we know the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. You, you may know that sacrament literally means sign. It's this picture, this demonstration, and scripture tells us, scripture tells us that that sign is also a proclamation. And so as we gather together today to embody and proclaim this message, I just I just want to encourage you to delight, to enjoy this gift we've been given of a God who has brought new life to us when we were desperate for it. Um, Delighting in awareness of how this new life doesn't just change us, but it changes everything. And not only that, it invites us into a partnership with a God who's changing everything.